0: The reading is from Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 through 42, and is on page 791 of your Pew Bible. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose the reward. Word of God, word of life, thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, who loves us with a transforming love, from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ, and from the Spirit who unites us all. Amen. It was July 5th, 1687, when the world changed. The world changed because Isaac Newton published Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, one of the most influential books in the history of science. It included Newton's three laws of motion. Anybody? Anybody? Oh my gosh, You all, 8 o'clock was like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> so three laws of motion. The first is the law of inertia. Objects in motion tend to remain in motion, right? Second is force. An object's acceleration depends on its mass and the amount of force applied to it. And the third is for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, right? Action and reaction is that force, But what was most remarkable about what Newton did is that he unified both the celestial and the terrestrial motions under one single framework. Up until that point, they had always been considered separate, distinct, not related. But Newton argued that gravity determines both the movements of the planets around the sun and motions of ordinary objects on Earth, like that famous story we hear where the apple falls and hits him on the head. But Newton didn't come up with these ideas out of nowhere. Scientists had been learning and positing about the heavens and the Earth for millennia. Had it not been for Ptolemy, who first noticed that there was a pattern to the ways that the stars and planets moved in the sky, and then he mapped them out but he mapped them out assuming that Earth was the center of the universe. Then Copernicus wouldn't have studied his model and reconfigured it using mathematical equations, which made everything simpler, which I don't understand because I don't think mathematical equations make things simpler, but apparently they do. So that led then Copernicus to posit that the sun was in fact the center of the universe. Fun fact about Copernicus and this life-changing, altering, discovery. He would not let that be published until after his death. On his deathbed, he looked at the manuscript, said, yep, died, and then they published it. Because he knew, he knew that this was going to change everything and that he would probably get in trouble for it. So Copernicus, center of the universe, is the sun, not the earth. And then Galileo invents the telescope, observing the moons of Jupiter, which proved Copernicus's theory. These are the foundations that Newton used to create his three forces, his theory about these laws of motion. And this, what Newton did and those before him, is what we call revolutionary science, as opposed to normal science. That is, new models that cause paradigm shifts, not only in science, but across fields of thought, which we know that how Newton viewed the world, or Copernicus, or Galileo, changed things across the board. I mention all of this science-y stuff, which I know is very uncharacteristic of me, because in the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus doing this same kind of reorienting, shifting the paradigm kind of work, especially for those who follow him. But Jesus' reorienting work ripples throughout the world, and he shifts the identity and the purpose of his disciples. So we've been spending the last few weeks in Matthew 10, but we started just at the end of Matthew um, 9, where we hear about Jesus has been healing all sorts of people, and then he's on the hillside and he looks around him at all of those still seeking healing and restoration He sees those who are oppressed by the systems that are in place, those who are still wondering if they have any worth. He sees all of these people despite all that he has already done and has compassion on them. And then he turns to his disciples and says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That's what we hear in the the beginning of chapter 10, Those disciples are sent out because the harvest is plentiful. They are created into these people that don't know what they're doing, but they become the laborers. And they're not sent to the heathens or to the pagans, those who unbelieve, those Gentiles and those Samaritans. No, they are sent to their people, to the very people Jesus had been looking at, The people seeking healing and restoration and freedom and worth, they are the harvest. Not people far out who needed to be saved, to be assured that they're going to go to heaven and that they do what they're supposed to do, but the people that needed to be healed with the amazing gospel message of the kingdom come near, of Emmanuel, which sounds kind of fun, right? I want to do that. That's why I'm standing up here. But I would want to do that. But Jesus says, hold on, friends. It won't be easy. Sometimes it will. Sometimes the people you encounter along the way will be so glad that you've come and will not only receive the peace that you give, but will give it back. Other times, though, there will not be a good reception, and there will not be wonder and hope and joy And so Jesus tells his disciples to just move on. That's not the end of it, though. Jesus keeps going on and talks about the high cost of being a disciple. This is the reorientation toward God, that God would be first and foremost in your life, a willingness to let go of everything that means anything to you including your closest relationships. The power of the gospel will cause turmoil in your life as much as it gives comfort because the power of the gospel calls for things like equity, justice, and peace. But the powers of the world, the powers of any day can't be powerful if there's equity, justice, and peace. So they seek instead to sow strife. They will fight hard because evil cannot stand in the light of the gospel. It will fight as hard as it can to keep what it has. And this is Jesus' warning to them and to us. Evil exists, but we are the light. On July 6, 1942, in the middle of World War II, Anne Frank and her family went into hiding in Amsterdam. They were hiding from the Nazis who seeked to kill them in a secret annex until they were discovered and captured in 1944. If you ever go to Amsterdam, you must visit the Anne Frank House because I don't think any of us can wrap our heads around how small that space was that those people, not just Ann's family, but some of their friends and neighbors as well, stayed in for so many years, for two years. It's incredible. We know about this ordeal because Ann writes about it. Her father published her work after her death. But it took several people willing to put their lives on the line To keep them safe for as long as they did. And they did so, friends, because we as followers of Christ are commanded to protect the lives of our neighbors according to the way that Martin Luther understands the commandment, you shall not murder. It's not just not to kill people, but to actually save their lives, to preserve our neighbor's life. So they did. Jesus tells us to give our life, to take up our cross, to risk for the sake of the world. And most of us will, I hope, never be required to do something so dramatic as hide a group of people from the evil of this world. But we are asked to take the risk. In this world of social media, say one thing and you can risk everything. But we are called to take that risk, to speak up for the injustices of our day, to stand in front of the people who are vulnerable in our world, to stand up against evil, to look around us and to see those who are needing healing, restoration, justice, and peace, to have compassion enough to do something about it. Because this world is a cruel place. Dr. James Cone says it this way, This world is where the brutal reality of inhumanity makes makes its ungodly appearance. Those of us who follow Jesus are called to combat that brutal reality by seeing the humanity in each and every person. By seeing the beautiful, precious child of God, even in the person that makes your skin crawl or makes you want to scream in frustration, even them. This is the deep call of discipleship upon our lives. This is the Holy Spirit pushing us to be a little bit less comfortable, calling us into a new way of being, reorienting us into a paradigm-shifting way of life. These last few verses of Matthew talk about welcome, and it's lovely, right? We like welcome around here. We've spent a whole year talking about how important welcome is. But I got confused as I was reading these few short verses about who these little ones were in verse 43, We haven't been talking about little ones, right? We've been talking about sheep and wolves and people who need hope and disciples not taking things with them. And I couldn't figure out who these little ones were that Jesus was talking about. This is why I don't like the way the lectionary has chopped up these particular verses. But it turns out that this term is used frequently in the Gospel of Matthew to talk about not only disciples, but also the hurting, the oppressed, and the outcast. So if you're a disciple listening to Jesus, and he has just said, I'm sending you like sheaves into wolf dens, I'm going to ask you to turn away from your family. I don't come to bring peace but the sword. These are all things that we've heard in Matthew 10. I don't think you're no longer you're no longer thinking about the ones whom Jesus is sending you to, the hurting, the oppressed. So here in this moment, as Jesus talks about these little ones being welcomed, being cared for, that cold cup of water image, Jesus is talking about the hurting, the oppressed, and the outcast that we heard about at the very beginning of this reading in Matthew 10. It seems to me that this is Jesus doing that final reorienting for his disciples, turning their minds and their hearts away from being sheep sent to wolves and back to the harvest of people waiting for healing, restoration, freedom, and worth. Because you see, whenever we go out into this world, we bring Jesus with us When folks welcome us in, they welcome Jesus, the Jesus that they see in each and every one of us. So if they don't see Jesus, that's our problem. We need to fix that. And they see Jesus when they see us, see their humanity, beautiful and flawed, each of them and each of us. When we bring Jesus with us, we bring the willingness to risk everything for their sake, to be willing to push ourselves beyond what we are comfortable with and into the realm of the kingdom of heaven, which is right here in this place, not somewhere down the line. Then we welcome all. Then we build community. Then we serve our neighbor. Newton wouldn't have been able to write that amazing work that changed our world had he and those who had gone before him not been willing to take that risk. Anne Frank would not have lived two years longer had others not been willing to take the risk to hide her and her family. And because it's 4th of July weekend, I'm thinking about the men and the women willing to risk everything For the idea of freedom, which wasn't perfect. The beginning of our country for sure still isn't, but it does change the world. And none of these things happened in a vacuum. They happened in community, human to human to human, working together to bring about a better world. So here we are, friends, living together as a community of faith taking the risk to love all people, to welcome all, to build community, to serve neighbor, knowing that as we do, we will be changed. That following Jesus is more about now than what happens when we die. It's about how we bring the kingdom of heaven here, living more deeply into the discipleship that calls us to service all because God chose to come to us, embodied in the person of Jesus who was love incarnate, who calls us to a revolutionary, paradigm-shifting way of life that welcomes everyone to the table.